Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and this week, uh, I have somebody on who I've wanted to have on for a very long time. Um, he's somebody who personally inspires me, as I was telling oh. him just before we went on uh, this this <laughs> podcast, because uh, he has in spades something I so often think that I don't, which is this incredible, you know, sort of po positive and pragmatic energy to just build and create better things that actually change people's lives in in a a real way as opposed to the the sort of gloss that we we seem to <laughs> to have around such things um so much today but Ian Rowe is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a visiting fellow at the Woodson Center, part of their 1776 Unites project. He has a new book out um just I think May 15th, right? Yes, 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 yes. So, um, new book out called Agency, the Four Point Plan, Free for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and Discover Their Pathway to Power. He's also running a set of charter schools in the Bronx based, I believe, around the four cardinal virtues. Yes, um, yes, yes. And there's literally probably six or seven more hats that Ian wears. <laughs> um, but in the interest of actually getting to the conversation, I'll, I'll stop there. Welcome, Ian Rowe, to High Noon. Oh, my gosh. And as I'm so happy that we finally are connecting. I know that we've wanted to do this for a, for a long time. And by the way, great funky music on that on that <laughs> intro. I like it. I like it. Um, so let's let's start with uh, how you ended up where you are now. I mean, how how did you become convinced of some of these things um, that you you really have been a champion for personal agency um, for uh, but but not in sort of isolation? And we'll get to that that happy balance that you you write about. But first, tell me where like how how did Ian Rowe end up where? you are right now um, and thinking the, the thoughts that you do. Wow. That, that, yes. Easy so my, 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 easy, my origin story. Um, so it is actually interesting, you know, what is, or what was my epiphany moment? Because as you said, you know, I've run schools uh, in the heart of the South Bronx for the last decade. I've had amazing experiences all in and around young people. You know, I was at MTV for six years. Um, you know, I was at the Gates Foundation at the White House, all trying to figure out ways to improve the lives of young people. But I think July 11th, 2016, at about 4 p.m., I think that was the moment. So you want to <laughs> so you want to know what happened then July of, of course July eleventh. <laughs> so uh, so I had been running this network of public charter schools. We we're doing quite well. Demand was really high. Um, our schools were in the South Bronx in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and we wanted to grow. Like where would we open more new schools? You know, there were nearly five thousand families on our wait list every single year. Uh, but in places like the South Bronx, you know, you had districts where only 2% of kids were graduating from high school, ready for college, just just lacking an opportunity. And so we decided to move our headquarters from Tribeca. Um, if you're familiar with lower Manhattan, like West Broadway, it's very hip and she-she, you know, you can get a latte on every corner. Um, we decided to move our headquarters to the South Bronx, to near 149th Street and 3rd Avenue, because... If, that's, if this is where our new schools were going to be, we should have our headquarters be there as well. And yes, it was a, you know, a higher crime area. There was even a, a needle exchange on the corner where we had our office. But I felt that this is, you know, kids need to go to great schools here and why not build our headquarters? So that's what we did. So we decided to do a walking tour on July 11th, 2016. 
And about close to 4 p.m. as we were walking as a team to get to know the neighborhood, like where's the local bodega, where's the local um, bank, um, we saw this 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck. And all these adults were around it, and they were somewhat excited, almost similar to the ice cream truck you know, that when you see a kids around, they're like, oh, my, it's very exciting. And as we got closer, we saw that there was graffiti lettering on the side. And the graffiti lettering said, who's your daddy? And it turns out that the who's your daddy truck is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks spend, you know, somewhere between $350 to $500 to do DNA testing on the spot to answer questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Like really deep questions about identity. And as it turned out, this truck was in such demand. The, the entrepreneur who had launched it had a second truck. VH1, the television um, network, had a reality series called Swab Stories. Because when you went on the truck, you had a DNA sample. And it, it suddenly became entertainment where people are he- learning lifelong or, you know, answers to mysteries around their family. And there was something about that experience. You know, I discovered the non-marital birth rate in this particular area of the Bronx was 85%. And I really, you know, you can go to Chicago, Appalachia, um, Buffalo, Rochester, and see that these numbers were uh, not so uncommon. And it was, I think, at that moment that I thought running schools is important. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And that if we really want to help the rising generation think differently about their lives, think about how they can lead a life of flourishing, regardless of how they um, come into the world, there are a set of pathways that we leaders, we um, the collectors of wisdom around what it means to lead a life of flourishing that we can do that. And in some ways, uh, my book agency, a lot of my work was born in that very moment that it was, it was not enough to be a school leader. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of not just walking the walk. I think you got to talk the walk. You have to build institutions that do what you believe is right. So I've often felt that's why I run schools, to let kids know that they can do hard things. But I felt I had to take an even bigger role in expressing all of the elements that are so critical to human flourishing, even beyond just education. Yeah, I mean, it, what, what's interesting, even in this one thing that you've identified, um, you know, out of wedlock births, for example, and what I was trying to look up as you were speaking was what the uh, Asian out of wedlock birth is rate is in the United States, because this is the only group that I'm not sure about. Um, I, but I believe that every other uh, U.S. sort of substrata um, that every one of us uh, essentially now is beyond the Moynihan threshold, right? If yes. I think back to yes. the, um, the Moynihan report, um, this is Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right? Who sort of uh, was the first to call what was happening then in pockets of the black community in America, um, a high out of wedlock birth rate, which I believe was like 25 or 30%. It was 23.6%, exactly. And, and pretty he, for every racial group in America is now over that is what, what I was going to say. Well, and, and the white population is, is, far, is, is now farther than that. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about that, because I hadn't really read that. I mean, I, you know, it's so interesting as an educator, you kind of 
you know, put your blinders on. I just got to run great schools. What's the curricula? You know, hire great teachers. But the truth is there are all these factors that really matter, family structure being one of them. So I really, I read the Moynihan Moynihan Report in detail after this epiphany experience because he really articulated this was in the mid-1960s at 23.6%. And by the way, there was a growing black middle class then. And so he was saying, look, there's a pocket, just like you just said, there's a segment of the black community that's crisis, crisis, crisis. The non-marital birth rate for everyone else was single digits. It was about 5% or 6% for the entire country, but it was 23.6%. And he said, if we don't, and, and what's also interesting, he said, it's really connected to the legacy of slavery. He he tied the historical discrimination. I don't think he's 100% correct, but he even said that, you know, it's not that there's necessarily this pathology, but this is a real issue. And unless we address it, it will become its own self-perpetuating force. And so now to your point, the non-marital birth rate in the Black community is more than 70%. The for a as a country, it's still forty percent, and it's been that way for about thirteen consecutive years now. Um, in the Hispanic community, it's about sixty uh, percent, and in the white community, it's north of thirty percent. In the Asian community, I still believe it's less than thirty percent, but even that is increasing. Um, but the point is, this has become what I call an equal opportunity tsunami. Uh, because for many kids raised, particularly with younger single mothers, and we have to say there's no guarantee, like you could be born into a stable married two parent household and not be successful. You could also be born into a single parent, young parent, and your life could be flourishing because your parent is just determined for you to be successful. But the data is overwhelming that the likelihood of success is dramatically different in a married two-parent household. So again, for me, when I saw this truck and what it meant and its normalcy and its, its acceptance, for me, it became clear that it's math and science and reading obviously crucial, but we also have to let young people know about the other areas of life, the other areas of decision-making that actually, by the way, can be sources of great happiness and joy and love and fulfillment. Um, and that's the formation of a family. We'll talk about it. It's pr- practicing a personal faith commitment. We can talk about it more, but it just became clear to me that there was lots of collective wisdom that we were depriving young people of. And then to see the negative impacts of things like very high levels of non-marital births, we, we just need to be honest with our kids about the choices that they're going to make for their own lives. Um, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about how you lay things out in this book and elsewhere in your work, um, you've really found this kind of balance between a, a total individualism, um, what you call pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Uh, and a kind of systemic collectivism that completely removes agency from the individual. Um, so you, you sort of recognize both the importance of personal agency and of institutional influence. Yes, yes. Um, can you maybe lay out that distinction for us yeah. and then we can dig into it more? Yeah, I think it's important because I do think young people, you know, I looked, I looked at some data the other day, the Archbridge Institute did an analysis of uh, how young people feel in their life, and they did it by age group. 
And only 39% of, I think, uh, young people aged 15 to 24 believe that they had a sense of agency, believe that they could lead a fulfilling life based on their own decisions, which is almost half what older generations believed about their own lives. And yet we're at a time when the level of technological innovation, the, the, the power that young people have in the device, I mean, you just think about it, just how things have changed. I mean, the, the millennials were, you know, born when the iPod, you know, was basically created. And a month ago, Apple said it's no longer, it's obsolete. They're no longer even going to be producing it. You just think about the level of weaponry, intellectual weaponry in the hands of young people. And yet the levels of loneliness, isolation, depression are, are, are in some levels that they're at an all time high. And so what, what is causing this? What is causing so many young people to feel alone and powerless and not having control of their own lives? And I, um, I do believe that there are these two meta narratives. The first I call blame the system and the other I call blame the victim. Uh, in a, in a blame the system, uh, uh, framework, that's my dog in the background. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that's Cosmo. He's that, that's part saying. of having all the, everybody doing everything remotely, all that intellectual weaponry you're talking about. The dogs have seized it for their own purposes. Yes. They remind us that all oh, this is just like blah, blah, blah. There's a dog across the street. That's much more important. Um, uh, he'll walk by soon. We'll, we'll make it through. So, but in, but in, in the blame the system, uh, narrative, if you're not successful, if you're not able to achieve the American dream, it's because America itself is the problem. Like it's America itself, which is the, um, you know, based on your skin color or your gender or some other characteristic, the system is rigged against you. It's an oppressive nation. Like there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Um, capitalism itself is perverse and evil. And these systems are so powerful, so discriminatory, that the only way that you can be successful is if there's a massive government intervention or massive societal transformation. And you see this in things like the 1619 Project or anti-racist doctrine or critical race theory that literally our systems are embedded with this hateful ideology, right? And so clearly that robs you of agency as a young person whether you're white or black, right? Because if you're black, you're, you're suffering under the weight of these systems. Or if you're white, you're inherently an oppressor. Like everyone just takes on these roles. But on the other side, the other narrative is what I call blame the victim. And in the blame the victim narrative, that is like, if you're not successful, it's not America. Like America is great. America is a land of opportunity. It's your fault. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You didn't um, do, it's, you know, it's some pathology that you have, you know, like you made bad decisions. And of course, the challenge there is that, you know, if you're a seven-year-old kid and you haven't had the benefit of being in a stable family or a strong faith commitment or been able to go to a school of your choice, it's really hard uh, to, to lead a life of flourishing. So we can't, we can't penalize young people if they haven't had the kinds of institutional supports that really make a difference to most people who lead a life of agency. And um, I've been visiting college campuses, you know, talking about 
this topic of these two meta narratives. I was at a law school and a student raised his hand. He was a law student. He says to me, well, if I can't blame the victim and I can't blame the system, then who do I blame? And it was just, just this very interesting question because for him, he needed a culprit. Like, what is wrong with America? You know, it's so interesting. He needed to obsess over, he needed an articulation of who's, who's to blame as opposed to why does America work? For, 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 you know, the hundreds of years it's been in existence, what are the institutions that have allowed generally hundreds of millions of people to lead lives of flourishing? And so it is, in my belief, young people need a framework that they can say yes to, that they can know that they do have the capacity to overcome the institutional barriers that the blame the system people say are insurmountable, while also saying that there are institutions that can provide the kind of supports that the blame the victim people constantly ignore. And I call this new way of being agency, the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So just think of agency as a vector, right? That vector of velocity um, is not just speed, it's speed and direction, right? So if you as a human being have free will, where do you develop the capacity to become morally discerning? Like that doesn't just come out of nowhere. And so I've, in my book, I really outlined this free framework, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And uh, family is not about the family that you're from. It's about the family you form. R is about a personal faith commitment. E is education, school choice. And if you have those three, a strong family that you formed, strong faith commitment, strong educational choice, that then sets you up for what, in my view, is a life of entrepreneurship. It's work, but it's this idea that you can become an owner of your own destiny. I can go into each one, but that's the meta-narrative that I think is the the blame the system and blame the victim meta-narratives that together add up to a singular lie and are impeding young people's ability to say, I want to lean in and I and I and I want to engage in life. And yet I think there's much more of a victimhood idea, either a learned helplessness, or these systems are too large, or this or society's too racist, or too sexist, or too something that I don't have the ability to be successful. There's almost a, a human scale element here, um, recognizing sort of the, the human level institutions or the, the mediating institutions between the very, very large sort of systemic that becomes faceless and and sort of a stand-in only for an abstract form of power that may or may not exist. And the totally like single atom, right? Where you're yes. you're completely willing every aspect of your life into existence. But you, you have a column in the New York Post um, over the weekend uh, entitled, Here's Why All Students Need Agency Rather Than Equity. And you you cite Eric Kaufman, who um, was actually a guest on this podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Oh. But um, this is this is something that I found incredible. Uh, he I guess he he in his research has found that even reading uh, a letter to my son by Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, 
was quote enough to reduce black respondents set of uh, reduce black respondents sense of control over their lives. That's incredible. Well, if you read the passages, measurable. Yeah, well, read the passages. I mean, in in Coates' book, he talks about the black body and how it's being pummeled and assaulted. It's it, he's actually a beautiful writer, but when you really dig into it, I remember reading it myself and just feeling, oh God, is this how I'm supposed to see my own sense of possibility? That my body is simply a rag doll to be pummeled by. Vigil, you know, police, vigilante police, or other white supremacists who are just always there. And Eric Kaufman, he did, he did, he he compared the reading passages there versus other passages, which actually talked about black ancestry and uh, um, the power of resiliency. And he measured people afterwards, and there was a decided difference in your sense of personal agency that I could be successful. And this is what I think more people just need to understand. You know, when you, you know, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, you know, one of the lead architects of the New York Times 1619 project, she has this whole passage as it relates to race, where she says, there's nothing a black person can do. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. Quote, None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. If, if, if enough kids, and again, black and white kids, hear this over and over and over and over again, you start to think, well, I guess I don't have the ability to break out of these roles. Again, whether you're the, the inherent oppressor or the inherent oppressed, you, this kind of learned helplessness starts to seep in. And so for me, I want to demonstrate that there is an alternative to this narrative of grievance and dependency. And I want to replace that with hope and agency. You know, one of the um, interesting things about our moment is that we're used to having exactly these kinds of conversations in America, mostly focused around Black Americans, right? Um, and, and it seems to me that in the last four to six years, the national conversation has been quite similar with regard, for example, to Appalachia um, or with regard to uh, mostly white um, people in the Rust Belt, right? Sure, right? And it strikes me that a lot of these conversations are very similar. They're about the, the collapse of mediating institutions like family, yep. um, a sense of of essentially a sense that the game is rigged um, against you. And so I'm wondering if you give any more credence to that sort of sense that things are rigged when you look at, because so much of your book um, and your, your worldview generally is, is hinging on institutional support, starting with the family, but going out from there. Right. Um, We live in a time where the vast majority of Americans white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, um, don't trust their institutions. Mm. Um, and an age in which those institutions have earned in, in many ways have, have really earned the mistrust, um, of, of people. I mean, how, how, how does this whole framework yeah. work when trust in institutions is in free fall and when the institutions themselves truly do seem to be 
um, set against the success of ordinary people in some like actual real ways that aren't just yeah. sort of a sense of grievance? Yeah, it's a deep question. I mean, what's interesting, what I would say is that the, tr the mistrust or distrust that's developed, which is absolutely true, I think still exists for the far away institutions. So the media, the press, Congress, you know, the, the quote unquote far away institutions. And, I, and I'm drawing a distinction between the far away institutions and the much more proximate mediating institutions, because the most important, just as we just said, first off is your family right? Because that's your anchor. Then your faith community, your school community. You know, it's really interesting. When you poll parents, they still generally, although things have shifted over the last two years, there's still a lot of trust in your teacher, right? There's still a lot of trust in your local pastor. Maybe the, the rest of the school system screwed up, but our teacher is okay, right? Or, or my local pastor is kind, even if those other people may, you know, no longer, or they may be amoral. And so the reason I spent so much time on this framework of family, religion, education, and ultimately entrepreneurship is that those first three are the most local, proximate uh, institutions from birth. Like even before you get to formal schooling, you've got five long years being nurtured or not, but you know, hopefully nurtured by your family those values, that character formation. And what I think is happening in our country today is that because of the weakening of the family structure, the lower religiosity, lack of high quality options in education, that cocoon that used to surround every young person is now being more penetrated by these larger institutions or social media, policy, the press. So suddenly, what used to be sort of the cocooning responsibility of parents, but now you don't, you know, many kids are being raised, particularly in disadvantaged homes, um, in unstable non-marital, um, you know, non-marital birth um, driven homes, lesser religiosity, lesser high quality school options. Where do kids now gain access to the kinds of values and morals that would normally protect them? And so this to me is the, is the singular issue that the distrust now that exists are, are, of the quote unquote far away institutions, whether it be the police to Congress or the presidency, it no longer feels like those institutions are working in your favor or whatever messages, particularly in social media, you're getting are no longer productive, which is why I agree a lot with Yuval Levin, who wrote a book, A Time to Build. We need to strengthen mediating institutions because what seems to be happening is that we're trying to tear down the larger institutions. You know, like let's break up the Supreme Court or let's, you know, let's just pack the court with more people so we can ensure that they vote, you know, our way. Like all these ideas, but ignoring the fact there has been to some degree a collapse of the institutions that matter most to young people. Um. I guess even those those closer institutions, and, and obviously you're pointing to their weakening, right? Um, throughout this book and throughout your work, um, you're pointing to exactly how those institutions are not really or have not been there for a lot more young people than used to be the case. I mean, so you have the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E, not the 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 nuns um, in, in a monastery, but quite the reverse. Uh, we have schools that 
for decades have been failing students academically. Um, but now we see the rise even within, for example, charter networks of schools that are teaching exactly the kind of, of sort of self-defeating lack of agency narrative um, that you're decrying. And we have a lot more people who are who just come from unstable or broken families. I mean, so, so where do we go from here? You say we need to rebuild these kinds of institutions, but it seems like these are actually things that are extraordinarily difficult to rebuild. Um, you know, perhaps in, in education, there's we can come up with, and we are both in ed policy, but we can come up with a, a set of sort of policy prescriptions. But with regard to the falling away from religion and with regard to broken families, it's not clear at all that there's sort of a policy prescription or something in particular um, from, from the, the sort of national level that we can do. So, I mean, how would you propose to, to kind of do, to actually start to rebuild some of these mediating institutions so that they are a positive rather than a negative influence? Because it seems like that, that's, that seems like a really, really top order to me. Yep, it is. It is. I mean, there, I don't know if you've seen the movie Top Gun <laughs> Maverick. And uh, the, this whole film is set up around this impossible mission that, you know, to, to destroy these uranium plants in some faraway country. You know, you've got to take these F-18 fighter planes up above a mountain, go through this ravine and hit these like targets that are just incredible. And no one believes it can be done. And there's a moment in the movie where Tom Cruise's character just gets on a plane and simulates doing this mission, taking his life into risk, and he does it. And it's this very triumphal moment. And then, of course, later on, they actually do it in real life. Like, he was, he was practicing it. But there's a moment where he has to prove that it's possible. And I very much feel my work, and hopefully, hopefully inspiring others, we have to build the institutions that demonstrate the values that we're all talking about. So that's why I'm launching a new network of high schools this August in the Bronx, you know, that's committed to these ideas of individual dignity, our common humanity, equal opportunity, and organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance. Because I believe, and I think it's going to be an amazing school, it's an international baccalaureate model, replicable, so that hopefully others can see we don't have to be so overwhelmed. Because you're right. I mean, Inez, what you just said, it's very daunting. There is no silver bullet policy that can be passed at the state or local level. I mean, there are certain things we can do to enhance, for example, school choice or removing penalties around marriage. So there are some technical interventions that can be implemented. But by, by, far, by, by far and large, it's going to take people like us to say that we're not so weighed down by the immensity of the challenge to just succumb to it. We actually have to say, wait a minute, you know what? There are people in every single community in this country who are already working around the forces. I mean, I do a lot of work with Bob Woodson who runs a Woodson Center and who for 40 years has helped tens of thousands of people become agents of their own left that you've never heard of, right? Who are working within their communities and leveraging the strength of family and faith and schools. So part of why I, again, run schools is A, to let young people know that they can do hard things. They will face challenges. There may be even people that don't like them because of their skin color. 
it, it, or, or don't like them for any number, number of reasons, but it's not insurmountable. And that there are local institutions, the most important one being the family, not the family that you're from, but the family you're from. I mean, for the family that you form, you know, so that's why data like the success sequence where, you know, if you finish your high school degree, full-time work, marriage and children, 97% of the time you avoid poverty. That's important information for young people to learn as they encounter these decisions upcoming in their life. But this is the central challenge. Honestly, it's why I've written this book. I feel like these blame the victim, blame the system narratives have led people to believe that these our institutions are so corrupt. Religiosity is down, just as you said, nuns. It just feels like it's hopeless. And yet there are millions and millions and millions of young Americans who have embraced the ideas of family and faith and hard work and free enterprise, and entrepreneurship, and they're leading pretty great lives of all races. So how do we start telling those stories to counter what you rightfully say is a very debilitating and defeatist narrative? And I just feel that's the essence of this country. I mean, de Tocqueville, when he observed America many years ago, one of his lines was, America is not enlightened than any other nation. But it is, it's because of its ability to repair her faults. And I just find that an incredibly powerful sentiment that the, the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal exist in our country. And I want young people to know that the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal exist within you and that you don't have to do it on your own. But there are institutions. And yes, you've got to be part of seeking them out but they exist within your local community. And, you know, so it, it, th this is the struggle. We're, we're in the inflection point in our country where I think it is very easy to give up or just to sort of fall into the a kind of a, you know, defeatist narrative. We're all waiting for some authoritarian, you know, president or some leader to just save the day. And that's not what this is about. This is about, in many ways, bottom-up reconstruction of our own lives. And in some sense, that's what agency is about. You can lead the life of your own choosing, but there are local institutions that can help you get there. We can't wait for somebody else or some government or some, some other artificial force to solve our problems. Um, Ian, what happened to Kip? Oh, well, because, you know, because yeah. let's, just to catch people up. So Kip is yeah. a, a large charter network um, that used to embody a lot of what you just said. It was really about creating a culture with a school culture that supported hard work, that supported agency. Um, and it's been one of the most disappointing stories to me that, for example, yeah. they recently got rid of what used to be their slogan, work hard, be nice. Yes. That was considered somehow not uh, not sufficiently anti-racist. Yes. Well, you, you're, you're citing a great example, and it's very painful for me because I you know, personally know the leaders of these organizations, not just KIPP, there are others, that for you know, 20, 25 years actually were saying, no, you are not trapped by circumstance, and that work hard, be nice was their slogan, which signaled that your effort matters and your character matters. No matter what, no one can take that away from you. But yeah, a couple of years ago, they decided, and every organization has the right to change its slogan, 
right? But they said, not only is it work hard, be nice, wrong, but it's wrong or we're removing it because, quote, meritocracy is an illusion, end quote. So think about that. Wait a minute. You're saying it doesn't matter? Like it's just an illusion? This is a falsehood? The one thing we as school leaders give to our kids is the anchor that knowing that their effort will be part of the mix. It doesn't mean it's a guarantee. And so when Kip made that decision, it was very challenging. I write about it in the book. And uh, I, you know, I found a quote from one of their graduates, in the, and I put it in the book, who talks about how the term work hard, be nice was such an important part of her development. And how it was, it was something that her teachers had really instilled in her. So it's just such a deep contrast, as always, between the quote unquote elites who think that they're, you know, representing the interests of the quote unquote disadvantaged. And then you'd speak to the folks themselves and say, no, 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 work hard, be nice. It's important because if you take that away, what do I have left? You know, because when you take, when you, when you lower standards, you know, generally all you're doing is you're eliminating the ability to achieve a level of dignity with excellence. You remove the bar. I don't know if you know this, but they have um, created a new slogan. It's something like, uh, you know, together, a future without limits. Like some milk toast, no verb, you know, you know just, but, but I think it was intended so that it wouldn't offend anybody. You know, and that's, when we, when we as adults succumb to this kind of anti-racist, these pressures to not offend anybody or somehow say, well, work, hard work doesn't matter or that meritocracy is an illusion, you know, it is disappointing. But what's the answer? The answer can't just be keep shouting in the rain, then build a better organization. Build, build Vertex Partnership Academies like I'm doing or any number of people who are not sitting still. And if the old institutions are sort of corrupt, corrupting themselves with this kind of defeatist mindset, then we got to speak out and build the empowering alternative. That's why I've written this book, because otherwise we're just, and let me also just quickly say, sometimes I think the people who are spouting all this nonsense, this narrative of defeatism, they are counting on you, Inez, to be so deflated that you're just going to be like, oh, you're just going to be silent because you know if you try to do something, people are going to attack you. They're going to call you all sorts of bad names. They're counting on you to not fight back. Don't let them have that victory. I mean, Glenn Lowry, who's a great you know, economist and commentator, he says this all the time. It's a bluff. These people are bluffing you to call out that somehow work hard, be nice is false because meritocracy is, is an illusion, according to them. It's a bluff. You know it's wrong. Have the courage to say obvious things out loud. And I, I just feel like I want to put myself on the line because I know how important it is for young people and how defeatist these ideologies really are. You know, you, you talk about how there's there's no guarantee, right, um, that your your hard work and your agency is but one input, um, but but it's an important one. Um, you know, some folks like, for example, um, Caldwell, right, has written this book called Age of Entitlement, 
um, where Christopher Caldwell, where he essentially makes the argument and, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but he essentially says that as soon as a society guarantees equality of opportunity, that essentially a lot of the, the place that we've ended up with has been the disappointment that equality of opportunity did not lead um, to an equality of outcomes. So how, how do, how do you advance in a society level way the the critical difference between those two things? Because it seems like Caldwell and some other folks on the right now think that this is like inevitable, right? And once you put forward some kind of equality principle, the expectation is going to be, well, then, you know, all, all the outputs will be the same at the end of the day, given like a, a sort of set amount of work that we're going to see uh, everybody sort of end up in the same place. And that's always going to be the inevitable sort of psychological, because I think his argument at the end of the day is kind of a psychological one. It's like that once we make this promise of equality, people will be disappointed when it's not fulfilled in, in like sort of actual outcome. Yeah. Well, that's, this is the whole argument of equality of opportunity versus equity. You know, first of all, we just have to disabuse people of this idea that in almost any setting, all people come out the same on an individual basis, much less all people come out the same on an identity group basis, right? And that that's, you know, Abraham Kendi says, well, if I see a gap or some a racial achievement gap, then that means racial discrimination. And therefore, the solution must also be race-based. And it's like, wait, 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 first of all, why are you even starting with this premise that all outcomes must be equal? Equality of opportunity is an incredibly powerful organizing principle for any society. The fact that the outcomes aren't equivalent, it's, 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 it's an impossible even um, suggestion to make in, in that every human being has individual strengths, areas of growth, individual characteristics, factors, circumstances that dictate how they lead their life. And by the way, they also have different desires. Not everyone wants to be, um, you know, an engineer. Not everyone wants to be a, um, you know, what, whatever, just pick any profession. But what we do want to ensure is that everyone has equal access. And one of the things I think that, I think in education that we do, um, so let's say you're a teacher and you've got 25 students in your class. That means you've got 25 human beings with individual strengths individual areas of growth who are in varying family structures, who have all sorts of different inputs. And so you as a good teacher, you have what we call differentiated supports. You figure out, well, what are the ways in which I'm going to help this student learn to get you to the point where everyone is on an equal playing field? That doesn't mean equal outcomes. It just means everyone's got an equal shot. And that is the best I think we can do. The very fact that you have inequities doesn't inherently mean that that's because of some uh, superficial discrimination. Now, if there actually is discrimination, sure, let's deal with that. But to make the assumption that inherently inequity means that there's some lurking evildoer that's forcibly creating these inequities, I think is a false. Uh, premise. And what we need to be much more focused on is this idea 
of equality of opportunity. I wrote this piece in the New York Post, as you said, you know, because the, the this idea of forcing equity, especially racial equity, is what leads, like, for example, the governor in Oregon, who a couple of months ago decided to, in the name of equity, eliminate the requirement for kids to um, uh, demonstrate proficiency in reading nor math in order to to graduate from high school. And this was to help kids of color. How sick is that? You're reducing the standard. You're saying in order for kids of color to quote and compete, you're eliminating the standard of expectations around math and reading. That is so insidious. And not only is it, you know, you know, discriminatory, it's racist, right? So, um, yeah, so this kind of, this kind of thinking about, well, we haven't gotten equality of, of outcome. So therefore what's wrong with equality of opportunity it's a false premise to begin with. I mean, that's certainly the the more constrained view um, of of human existence and life. Uh, I wanted to ask you, actually, just to change gears a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask you what you think about Camille Foster and Thomas Chatterton Williams' arguments about race existing or not. Um, they functionally just to lay it out. You know that they argue that it is race is socially constructed, which is certainly true to some extent when, you know, uh, I think Thomas Chatterton Williams points to the fact that he's read as Arab right here. He's read as a mixed black man when he's in France where he lives. He's read as Arab because actually like the, the phenotypical traits that we denote as race aren't like very clearly carved up. There's a lot of penumbra in between. There's a lot of, um, you know, sort of a lot of like different national peoples or, yeah. or sort of, um, Clearly, there's some correlation, it seems to me, between genetic background and a certain set of phenotypical um, characteristics. But they argue that this concept that we're using doesn't really exist. I mean, do you do you think that's right or do you think that um, there's there's more to this concept that's real, but perhaps it's just not as important as um, some folks would like it to, to be or imagine it to be? Yeah, well, it's clearly, I mean, race is clearly a social construct. You know, it's just that, unfortunately, we still live in a society where your race matters or the assumptions around your race matters. And to the degree that we can start to realize that there are factors beyond race, then maybe we can start making some headway in some of the other things that really matter to human flourishing and agencies, such as strong families, strong faith commitment, education, entrepreneurship. You know, in education, let, you know, let, let, let's go down this race road for a second. You know, there's the racial achievement gap where, you know, historically, if you look at the last 40, 50 years, there's just been this constant, almost permanent gap between underperformance of black students relative to white students, right? And we got to close the racial achievement gap. Well, ironically, in the entire history of the nation's assessment, you know, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, otherwise known as the nation's report card, since 19, early 90s, there has never been a situation in which a majority of white students are reading at grade level, right? Um, And so if you were to actually close the racial achievement gap, all you'd be doing is achieving universal mediocrity. And it's not like, Um, it's highly unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that the majority of white students have not been reading at grade level. 
And perhaps the reason that a majority of white kids and a larger majority of black kids are not reading is not necessarily or solely due to these forces based on skin color. Maybe it has to do with stronger families, stronger faith commitment where there's great correlation to better educational outcomes, strong school choice, you know, higher, you know, higher end curriculum, the science of reading. So we would start to discover, and one of the things I actually want to do with the National Assessment for Educational Progress is to make family structure one of the prisms through which we uh, highlight student achievement. So we go beyond the usual suspects of race or class or gender. If you had family structure, you would actually start to see that married two-parent households versus single parent versus grandparent, there are about seven different mutually exclusive categories, you would start to see across race, across class, across gender, that kids being raised in married two-parent households have far far greater uh, academic outcomes. And the reason that's important is that maybe our solution set would start to differ, differ because we'd start to say, okay, well, then how do we strengthen families, both culturally and through policy? And so this idea of race being a, a social construct is no longer the predominant topic when we're discussing these kinds of issues, because we'd start to see that actually race is not the thing that seems to be the most important thing when it comes to explaining outcomes for students and academics or, frankly, almost any other area. So what I'm fairly certain is real is, is sort of um, cultural. I mean, the, the idea that culture and perhaps race are are totally, not totally, but mo- mostly, as you're saying, disconnected from each other, or at least can be. It's not clear to me that that's, that's as much the case with like, the, the, again, kind of on your, your, your principle, the closer you get to the actual, you know, immediate influences in your life, right? So I feel like it's very hard to deny people would say like that their family, obviously their family impacts them. And then on some level, the values that their family, you know, have has imparted to them have something to do with the, the sort of ethnic background of that family or where they came from, right? I, I've obviously been, you know, um, quite seriously influenced by the fact that my, my parents came from the other side of the Iron Curtain, right? So like, there is some connection there, but I'm I'm open to the idea that the connection is on a more granular level than race. That maybe it's more yes. on, the, on the like sort of ethnic and and um, national level rather than on these broader categories, because they, those broader categories do seem to be so full of, of sort of soft borders that they become more and more meaningless the more that you look at it. It's all narrative. It's not, it's all amorphous where you say, right, well, it's because you're black that you, you know, you inherently are doing badly or it's, it, or you're white, you're inherently doing better. And then, but then you, you start looking at data and you say, well, actually, um, I mean, another example, the racial wealth gap often seen as proof, you know, the average uh, white family has about $160,000 greater uh, net wealth than the average um, Black family. That was from the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances. And that's proof of uh, the both historical oppression and current oppression. But if you take into account just two factors, family structure and education level, the average married, college-educated Black family has about $160,000 greater wealth than the average white single parent family. So it's like, huh, 
okay, maybe there are factors outside of race that really make a huge difference. And in education, the number one factor that really drives student outcomes, you know what it is? Number of hours spent studying, right? Work hard, be nice. Yes. So that's why we got to blow up these narratives. And, and, you know, when we say this, haters will say, see, they're denying systemic racism exists. No, no, no. We're just saying it's not that it's not that there aren't issues around race or racism. It's just that when we start to articulate this sort of monocausality, that that's the only thing that matters, that's the only determinant. And you just ignore mountains of evidence of the factors that really drive human flourishing, then you are denying the very young people who need hope and agency and all these things, knowledge around studying and patterns of family formation, these factors that really drive outcomes, you're being dishonest when we don't share that. And it really frustrates me when I see really successful people who literally have done all of these things in their own lives, you know, gotten their own education, have a faith commitment, um, gotten work, had children within marriage, and yet never, never preaching what they practice in their own lives. Well, you can read all about the, those factors that uh, Ian was talking about, uh, that the factors that drive human flourishing in his book, Agency, The Four-Point Plan, Free for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and Discover Their Pathway to Power. Ian Rowe, thank you so much for joining us today on High Noon. Inez, so great to hang out with you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, and IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. I love it. Be brave. Yes.